The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, Probe, and The Popcorn Kid. In a fit of midlife nostalgia, and an effort to remind the internet of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. To Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short lived shows, pilots, and made for TV movies. Coming to you from the 24 square foot studio of solitude, I'm your podcast producer and host, Chris Cooling. If you're listening to this on a web browser, you can subscribe to Forgotten TV on your mobile device and not miss a single show. Find it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or ask Alexa to play it for you. If you like this podcast, please give it a star rating or even leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podchaser. This helps the show become discoverable to new listeners. Thanks. With every new TV season come some winners and some losers in its new shows. In the very early 1980s, NBC was beginning to do well under new president Brandon Tartikoff, who was beginning to turn around the slump the network had experienced in the late 70s and was responsible for introducing Hill Street Blues, The A-Team, Knight Rider, Remington Steel, and Silver Spoons to its network lineup. The fall season of 1983, however, instead of producing any hits, was full of misfires and is still something of a head-scratcher today. Going into the fall season, a whopping 16 shows would not be returning from the prior year. These included hits Chips, Little House on the Prairie, Quincy M.E., and Taxi. NBC invited viewers to be there in the campaign for the 1983 fall season, one of the more memorable TV campaigns of the 80s. TV networks used to have these slogans and fully produced campaign spots every year to entice viewers to their fall lineup of shows, complete with customized voiceovers for local stations, something that fell out of practice in the mid to late 90s. The promo spot began with scenes of a jazz band rehearsing for the song Be There, the jingle of the promo. When the band starts performing the song, clips of returning and upcoming NBC shows begins over the commercial jingle. The jingle's theme was to invite the audience to watch NBC shows that were full of exciting and memorable characters. Every time, the refrain ended in, You can NBC there, be there. You can NBC there, be there. 
However, the reality of the new fall season just didn't measure up to the hype. Nine new scripted shows would debut, and they would all be major flops for the Peacock Network. Some were simply forgettable. I mean, do you remember Bay City Blues or The Rousters? Three of these shows, though, would haunt various worst TV show lists for decades. They include Mr. Smith, We Got It Made, and Manimal. Before any of these shows had even aired, the writers of The Late Show were taking cracks at the 1983 fall season. I know what you're saying, Mr. Letterman. The Voyagers, it was different. It was really special. I don't think I'll ever watch TV again. Jimmy, don't ever say that. Not even as a joke. What should I do? I tell you what. I'll show you the NBC fall schedule. Come on. I have a feeling we're going to find a new show for you that just may turn out to be as good as Voyagers. It'll be a lot of fun. And uh, here's a show called Manimal. This one's about a crime fighter who can turn into a, a snake uh, and a bird. This one, this one is about a chimp who lives in Washington. <laughs> you know, that'll be good. Jimmy, I don't think we have anything to worry about. And to think I was sad they canceled Voyagers. <laughs> this is going to be the best TV season ever. <laughs> Maybe it will be, Jimmy. <laughs> Maybe it will. Yeah, I don't think so. The website Cracked includes Mr. Smith, NBC's 7 p.m. Central Friday night show in its TV shows you won't believe were actually made list. Mr. Smith featured a talking orangutan that became a political advisor. NBC Week continues with the hilarious one-hour premiere of Mr. Smith. He's part of a scientific breakthrough. He can talk. Checkmate. It's NBC's outrageous new comedy, Mr. Smith. Nearly a million have called him. Now you can see him during NBC Week. The star of Mr. Smith was an orangutan named Cha-Cha, who was captured and taken to a government research center in Washington, D.C., where he drank an experimental mixture intended to increase human intelligence. This mixture gave Cha-Cha an IQ of 256 and the ability to speak. He thus became a top political advisor. Yes, the joke indeed was, a monkey could do a politician's job. On NBC's Saturday night at 8 p.m. Central was We Got It Made, featuring two Manhattan bachelors in a New York high-rise apartment that decide to hire a housekeeper, whose only qualification is that she was hot, much to the chagrin of their girlfriends. Why the show practically writes itself. It's the hit show everybody's talking about. Sounds good. A comedy so funny, you'll laugh till you turn blue. <laughs> I look like a giant smurf. We got it made. The attempted humor was clearly inspired by Three's Company, complete with plots based on misunderstandings, but with none of the charm or comedy talent that show had. The show was universally panned by critics, and the show was truly terrible. It remains one of the worst shows I personally have ever seen. It seems executive producer Fred Silverman's name has even been removed from the show's IMDb listing. Hmm... The third 1983 NBC series that often makes these lists is the subject of this podcast, Manimal, brought to you by show creators Donald Boyle and Glenn Larson. 
NBC liked a high-concept series idea originated by Donald Boyle and wanted to get Glenn Larson involved to fully develop his idea into a series. Donald Boyle had been a writer on The Six Million Dollar Man and writer-producer on Bigfoot and Wild Boy. Glenn Larson was at the height of his career at this time and was somewhat familiar with high concepts. By the middle of the 1983 TV season, he was responsible for seven hours of primetime programming, including Auto Man, Masquerade, Knight Rider, The Fall Guy, Magnum P.I., and Trauma Center. British actor Simon McCorkendale was cast as Dr. Jonathan Chase, the titular Manimal. He had theater training in London and started appearing on TV and film in the mid-70s and was in Death on the Nile, as well as the TV productions of I, Claudius, Jesus of Nazareth, and the Quatermass series. Actress Melody Anderson had worked with Glenn Larson before on a number of shows like Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Bear, and The Fall Guy. She, of course, had been Dale Arden in the 1980 feature film Flash Gordon. She was cast as Detective Brooke McKenzie. With a theme by Paul Shahara, composer of themes from Death Race 2000, the 1978 Doctor Strange TV movie, The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, and Whiz Kids. Manimal would play in the regular time slot of Friday at 8 p.m. Central after Mr. Smith and Jennifer slept here. This would mean it was NBC's attempt to counter-program against CBS ratings powerhouse Dallas. Manimal, Episode 1, Manimal, aired September 30, 1983, with Glenn Turman as Ty Earl, friend and confidant of Dr. Chase, Rennie Santoni as Lieutenant Rivera, and TV regulars Terry Kaiser, yes, Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's, and Ed Lauter also starred. And Ursula Andress? Episode 1 plays like a regular episode of Manimal with teaser and opening theme. So, here we go. What are you guys doing? Starting your own guerrilla unit? What are you doing here? Open to what is obviously an illegal weapons sale. The well-dressed weapons seller is tailed by Dr. Jonathan Chase via taxi 
We see he is a police consultant by the ID he flashes. In the back of the cab, he transforms into a Black Panther and continues his pursuit into a warehouse to find out more about the weapons smuggling operation. Shot and injured, he flees the warehouse. A shipment of weapons leaves via truck and is coincidentally tailed by a black-and-white police unit with officers Simmons and McKenzie. Simmons is a 20-year veteran of the force, and Brooke McKenzie is a young officer eager to make a bust. The truck speeds off but gets in a wreck. Simmons is shot by the driver, while McKenzie follows a Black Panther running down the street into an alley, but only finds Dr. Chase, who she warns to be careful that there is a wild animal on the loose. Continuing into the alley, she finds a dead end with no panther in sight. Back at the station, her boss, Lieutenant Rivera, suggests consulting with a Dr. Jonathan Chase at the New York University Police Science Department regarding why a panther would be prowling loose in New York. Dr. Chase is a behavioral scientist that consults with the police on cases involving animals. She finds he is the same man she saw last night in the alley. Chase denies being the same man, but McKenzie isn't buying it. This begins a coquettish partnership between the two, complete with flirty banter, as they team up to go after the black market weapons dealers. After seeing only human and no animal blood in the test results from the alley that night, McKenzie begins to suspect Chase actually is the Black Panther she's been seeing show up at these crime scenes, a suspicion that is later confirmed after snooping around his menagerie and reading his journals. Through his animal transformations, enlisting the help of one of his real cobras, as well as a number of lions and tigers from the New York Zoo, Chase is able to investigate the arms dealers, finds out they are planning to expand their operations to hijack a shipment of nerve gas, and assists McKenzie in taking them down. Everyone gets arrested except for Colonel Hunt, who was organizing the whole thing from his pool, and seems to get away with it. But in the closing scene... A shark is suddenly in his pool and swimming right for him. This premiere episode sets up the relationship of Dr. Chase with the New York police as that of a police consultant, which itself has now become almost its own television genre in recent years, as we talked about in the last podcast. Yet, there doesn't seem to be any consistency with how he comes to be involved in these cases. It would make sense for him to be called in when there is a case involving animals to obtain his expertise, but the next episode opens with him on a stakeout involving a smuggling operation. Also, Brooke McKenzie's character isn't really defined as to her position with the police department. In this episode, she appears to be a regular uniformed officer, but then later is a detective. It was really unclear. In this episode, popular current songs were heard, both Michael Jackson's Beat It, although I think this was a cover song performed by another artist, and Never Gonna Let You Go by Sergio Mendez are both heard. This was not done again in subsequent episodes. Transformation Count 9 
panther, panther, hawk, cat, panther, hawk, panther, panther, shark? <laughs> episode 2, Illusion. A casting change took place for Episode 2. Glenn Turman was replaced with Michael D. Roberts as Tyrone Earl. It seems they wanted to go a different direction with the character, making him less serious and more personable, thus the recasting. Indeed, several episodes end with a comical reaction to something Ty was up to. Michael had played Rooster, the jive-talking street hustler, on 33 episodes of Beretta, and had been in several Glenn A. Larson shows, Quincy, BJ and the Bear, and Knight Rider. Episode 2 guest starred Richard Lynch as bad guy Zoltan Gregory. Because two weeks ago everybody was watching the Dallas season premiere, it turned out few people had watched the Manimal premiere, so we get a lengthy additional segment narrated by William Conrad, giving us Dr. Chase's backstory we should have gotten in the pilot, instead of the vague story we got, making the entire opening segment an incredibly long two minutes and 45 seconds. Illusions. You see it, you don't see it. Some people are more difficult to kill than others. A superstitious old mother would say they have the nine lives of a cat. Dr. Jonathan Chase. Wealthy, young, handsome. A man with the brightest of futures. A man with the darkest of pasts. From Africa's deepest recesses to the rarefied peaks of Tibet. Heir to his father's legacy and the world's darkest mysteries. My son, you must have faith and learn. This is not the end. This is the beginning. Jonathan Chase, master of the secrets that divide man from animal. Animal from man. Partnered with a young police detective and a former army corporal from the fields of Vietnam. A trio that stands against the crime that breeds in the concrete jungles and stretches its deadly tentacles to the fascinating but dangerous world beyond. The world of Manimal. Chase, Ty, Brooke, Lieutenant Rivera, the whole gang are on a stakeout to nail a smuggling operation. When the bad guy, Zoltan Gregory, is fingered by a witness, it turns out he has diplomatic immunity. Forced to let Zoltan go, Jonathan transforms into a hawk to tail him and find out more about his operations. The investigation leads to the Animal Illusion Act of Harrison Ross. Chase and Mackenzie attend the act and are invited on stage as volunteers. During the act, Harris is killed seemingly by Tipsy, the Bengal tiger. Dr. Chase must prove Tipsy didn't kill Harris, but that he was murdered, as well as somehow nail Zoltan Gregory. In this episode, we see the simultaneously hilarious and horrifying transformation into a hawk, one of the two Stan Winston transformations the show paid for. 
all other animal transformations were done off-camera, with the exception of one in a later episode. This episode was a good example of what the show should have been. Dr. Chase called in to investigate when there was a crime involving an animal. Even so, until Harris is killed, there would have been no reason for Jonathan's involvement. But for unspecified reasons, he was on a smuggling ring stakeout. One bit of trivia from this episode was that multiple shots from the cab ride scene were reused two months later in Auto Man, another Glenn Larson series airing concurrently on ABC. Episode 3 of Auto Man features a similar cab ride shared between Walter and Auto Man, although with a sharp eye, you can see it's Jonathan and Brooke in the back seat as the cab pulls up, not Walter and Auto Man. They darkened the scene to make it hard to tell, but didn't count on YouTube and DVD freeze frames. Even the same actor was used for the cab driver. And this won't be the only Auto Man crossover. Transformation count? Three. Hawk. Hawk. Panther. Episode 3, Night of the Scorpion. With Doug McClure. Robert O'Reilly, who later played Gowron on Star Trek The Next Generation and Glenn Corbett, who played Zeph from Cochrane on Star Trek, the original series. The list. Don't know where the list is. They clearly weren't particularly interested in the money. Something else that they wanted. Your father worked for the CIA. I was his commander. The Russians have Terry and Brooke. You tell me where I find the Russians. And I'll tell you how you find your list. We open with a man being interrogated by Russian agents about the location of the knock list, and he dies from the truth serum he is given. To try to cover their tracks, the agents release a large spider onto his body. Chase is then called in to examine the scene. A note and $2 million are left to the man's daughter, Terry. Chase, McKenzie, and Ty travel to Jamaica to protect Terry while trying to locate the list before the Russian agents do, and Chase enlists the aid of an elephant to save the day. Contrary to the title, there were no scorpions in this episode. Transformation count, three. Panther, parrot, panther. <laughs> episode four, female of the species. With Gloria Stewart making an appearance, well known for her role on Titanic, and Laura Cushing as the Wolf Girl. What were you doing in India among the wolves? Why does someone want to kill you? Take it down. Someone has tried to kill her, which means that she's entitled to police protective custody. Chase and McKenzie are attending a lecture about the capture of a feral girl found in India, a young woman, really, who has an attempt made on her life during the lecture. The wolf girl escapes, and a chase ensues. Dr. Chase becomes a hawk to pursue her, but is injured and loses her. Later, finding her at the zoo, he gains her trust when she witnesses him transform back into a man. 
It turns out the young woman is the only survivor of a wealthy businessman's family that was murdered years ago on the Ganges River. And the killers are still around, and the young woman's life is in danger. The characters are starting to become more familiar with each other in this episode. There is more flirty banter between Chase and Mackenzie, and Ty almost relates a very ribald encounter involving a snake charmer. This episode is written around the concept of feral children, which I gave some background on in Forgotten TV episode 16, Lucan. For the first time, we see a reverse transformation, and his clothes do magically reappear, complete with shirt and tie. Amazing! The plot of this episode was recycled twice more, once in a 1986 episode of the CBS series The Wizard, entitled Endangered Species, and again as a 1994 episode of the series Thunder in Paradise. All three episodes were written by Michael Burke and Douglas Schwartz. And I swear I saw recycled footage from Flipper in there, as well as music cues from Galactica 1980. Or maybe it was my imagination. Transformation count three. Hawk, Panther, Dolphin. Episode five, High Stakes. Chase and Ty attend the horse races where a skydiver's main parachute won't open up and the skydiver passes out. Manimal to the rescue. In his hawk form, Chase opens his reserve chute. These events thousands of feet high are somehow seen by the announcer and narrated to the crowd, who thinks it's all part of the show. Later, it's discovered it was a distraction to switch horses so a stolen prize winner can replace a long shot in a betting scheme. And for the third straight episode, a beautiful young woman needs rescuing. During downtime at the station, we got two scenes of flirty banter between Chase and Mackenzie, complete with animal-laced double entendres. We also get a hilarious scene with Chase as a panther sneaking around a taxidermist office, opening file cabinets and reading files. In this episode, the editors added an animal sound as an outro clip when the show went to commercial. This practice was not continued in subsequent episodes. Transformation count three. Hawk, panther, horse. <laughs> After this episode aired, the show was placed on hiatus by NBC, and production on the show ceased. Again, something that did not go unnoticed by David Letterman. Okay, we got a good show for you folks here tonight. Uh, for all television-watching Americans, this, however, is a time of uncertainty, a time of hope, and a time of fear. Last Friday, the National Broadcasting Corporation aired what could be the final episode of the high-style fantasy adventure series, Manimal. Yes, the show about a man who fights crime by transforming himself into different animals has been temporarily removed from the NBC lineup and placed into that TV netherworld known as hiatus. <laughs> November 4th, 1983, Black Friday. 
last regularly scheduled broadcast of the program. Now we may never learn who these other two people are. Is she beautiful but not afraid to get her hands dirty? Is he streetwise but loyal? But more importantly, with scarcely more than a dozen transformations to his credit, we may now never see Manimal become a collie, a gecko, or one of the more than 6,000 varieties of beetle. But whatever happens, we still have our memories of four of the finest episodes of fantasy adventure ever to light up our Friday evenings. While not yet officially canceled, the writing was on the wall. After a month with no manimal, the show returned on Saturday night, and the final three episodes that had already been produced aired. Episode 6, Scrimshaw. With a post-Voyager's Mino Pilus, and character actors Keenan Wynn and Anne Ramsey both make appearances. You have a piece of Scrimshaw that is rightfully mine. Ah! What's that noise? Step on it! We were hoping you could tell us why someone may have been murdered for that. This ain't no ordinary piece of scrimshaw, I tell you. Let's run! Clancy, look out! Get down! Bomb, bro. Remember, I hate snakes! Chase is piloting a small airplane with Mackenzie and Chase's teenage friend Corky in tow, who was very interested in Mackenzie. In a cave on the beach of an island off the east coast, Mackenzie discovers a skeleton with a boomerang embedded in its skull, holding a scrimshaw, an engraved ivory tusk. The trio take it to Gorky's grandfather, who seems to know more about it than he lets on. Everybody goes undercover in a seaside community to learn more about the scrimshaw, which of course has a treasure map on it. Mackenzie needs rescuing from a sinkhole, which of course requires Chase to transform into a Burmese python and acts as a rope in a scene that seems to directly reference Raiders of the Lost Ark. The writers of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull return the favor by reenacting the manimal scene 25 years later, this time with Indy being rescued with a snake thrown to him by Mutt. We got a break from the damsel in distress trope in this episode, and we got a new transformation added to the list. Unable to afford Stan Winston again, the snake transformation was done by the effects team of Michael John McCracken and Michael Sean McCracken, who would also work together on the Ice Pirates and the Kindred. Transformation count three. Panther, Hawk, Snake. Episode seven, Breath of the Dragon with George Chiang. You may not know the name, but you've seen him. 199 credits on IMDb, including the Rush Hour films, Austin Powers, and numerous forgotten TV-era TV appearances. And longtime actor James Hong appears, who is a really nice guy in person. Martial arts all began with the study of animals. One person to stand up and testify, that's all it takes, the rest will follow. I will teach him never to interfere with the dragon. Please, Shifu, do not kill him! Turn your face down! The breath of the dragon. He'll be alright. The trio visit a Chinatown restaurant on Tai's birthday and give him a surprise birthday party. 
Chase stumbles into a protection racket being run by a Chinese gang slash cult, who also is running a crooked underground gambling den. Chase is friends with the restaurant owner, whose son has been taken in by the cult gang. And Chase and Ty go undercover to try and extricate him, as well as save Chinatown from the cult leader. After a ridiculous training montage, Chase faces the gang leader and for the first time in the series, has to confront his opponent as a man without relying on his manimal powers. This episode has a Karate Kid flavor to the final showdown. If you watch it, you'll see what I mean. But this aired around six months before The Karate Kid was released. We get another flirty moment in this episode between Chase and Mackenzie, and they seem to make another Raiders of the Lost Ark reference. And we evidently have another Auto Man crossover here. Multiple online sources state there is a scene in this episode where you can see the characters from Auto Man in the background, as Auto Man was filming the same backlot set from a different angle. And in an Ottoman episode, you can thus see the Manimal characters in the background. I went through this episode several times and could never find this scene. I'm not saying it's not there. It's just that it must not be obvious, and I just couldn't find it. When I get to Ottoman next year, we'll revisit this bit of trivia. This episode on the DVD has a weird authoring error that plays the entire first act twice, making the episode runtime come in at 58 minutes instead of the normal 50. Transformation count 3. Hawk, Bull, Panther. <coughs> episode 8, Night of the Beast. With character actor Jeff Corey. Robert England, even though his name is misspelled in the credits. And Fran Ryan. About a year ago, the hotel was bought by a group of big city investors. Well, they want to legalize gambling in Birch Hollow. We want those petitions. You think I'd be stupid enough to keep them here? Everybody stand back! I think they're going to kill us. We slapped you in the cell along with them as soon as look at you. Oh, Sheriff, I don't scare that easily. The golden bear, Sheriff. I can feel it in my bones. The trio are sticking out a bad guy and make a narcotics bust, with Chase turning into a horse to facilitate this. They are given the weekend off and choose to head to the small mountain town of Birch Hollow for time off. Swerving to avoid hitting a skunk, Ty bends the front axle of the car, stranding them on the road up there. Picked up by an older couple, they hear about the legend of the Golden Bear and get a sales pitch for Fran Ryan's moonshine. They end up at the Birch Hollow Hotel, where the crime syndicate is meeting to discuss how they will pressure the residents to accept a major casino build in the town. Chase is mistaken for one of the syndicate and kidnapped by a young local woman. Mackenzie and Ty are beginning to pick up on just who else is staying at the hotel and get caught snooping around. Arrested, they are broken out of jail by a bear? It all comes to a head when the trio have to fight the crooked local law and that moonshine gets put to good use. And in this episode, we get another scene that seems to reference Raiders of the Lost Ark. Transformation count, three, horse, panther, hawk. And after eight episodes and 30 transformations, that was the last episode of Manimal. Normally, this is where I stop. However, 
that was not the last we saw of Jonathan Chase. When we come back, we'll take a look at the last time Manimal was seen. Manimal will continue in a moment. What's on the horizon for TV? More than 100 broadcast and cable channels. That's why Zenith invented the smart set. The only set smart enough to give you 178 channel capability now. Smart enough to let you access more channels through Zenith's most advanced Space Command remote control. The smart set lets you tune in the future without leaving your chair. Advanced System 3. The smart set. Exclusively Zenith. Here it comes! You missed! Faster! Get out of the way! Uh oh! Oh wow! Your peanut butter hit my chocolate! Your chocolate hit my peanut butter! Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Real milk chocolate, delicious peanut butter. Two great tastes that taste great together. Reese's? Yeah! Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. You can be anything you want to be there. You can see anything you want to see there. There's excitement in the air for you and me there. You'll feel free there. You can and be there. But you've got to be there. Yeah. you just got to be there. You'll feel free there. You'll be what you want to be. See what you want to see. Fifteen years after the NBC Manimal series, on the Glenn Larson series Nightman, Manimal made one final appearance. Nightman was a syndicated series that aired from 1997 to 1999. It was loosely based on a comic character. Johnny Domino was a San Franciscan jazz musician struck by lightning and given the telepathic ability to recognize evil. But it robs him of the ability to sleep. He has a bulletproof bodysuit that gives him the ability of flight, holographic camouflage, and a night vision lens that allows him to fire lasers. Just go with it. Nightman, Season 2, Episode 6, Manimal, airing November 15, 1998. Starring Matt McCollum as Johnny Domino slash Nightman. Derwin Jordan as Raleigh Jordan. Jane Heitmeyer as Lieutenant Bryony Bronca with Gerald Plunkett as Jack the Ripper. The episode opens in 1894 London, and Jack the Ripper is up to no good. But what? Dr. Jonathan Chase is on the prowl and transforms into his panther form and attacks the Ripper. A struggle takes place, and the panther transforms back into Chase. The Ripper stabs Chase through the forearm and pulls out a mysterious crystal and vanishes. Moments later... Chase pulls out his own crystal and vanishes. We then get our series opening.
chase materializes in the middle of the road in 1998, where Johnny Domino and Raleigh are taking a night drive and swerve to avoid hitting him. Using his nightman telepathy, he senses the recent fight between Chase and the Ripper and pursues Chase to find out more, but only finds a hawk flying away as well as a telepathic message. Later, at a classical music concert, the Ripper makes an attempt on Dr. Chase's daughter, but only succeeds in injuring her fiancé. Seeing this reported on the news, Domino realizes he has to join forces with Chase, and we get an exposition dump that gives us more background into Dr. Chase's past than we ever got in the Manimal series. Crystal is the core element of the planet. She resonates to the frequency of the Earth's soul. She harnesses time and motion and makes possible spiritual as well as physical transformations. The Hark. Hmm. Oh, you are gifted. I'm sorry about the scratches. Purely defensive, I can assure you, not knowing who or what you were. It all began when I was about 12. I was with my father in Africa. He'd been studying a tribe in Tanganyika. My father became friends with their shaman, who initiated him into the mysteries of shape-shifting transformations. My father was struck down by dark magicians, but before his spirit passed on, he transferred his powers to me. In both a blessing and a curse, a hopeless quest try to tip the balance away from evil and towards good. I know something about that. Yes, I believe you do. But it was challenging enough trying to right wrongs in my own time. But the added burden of discovering access to the past made my life a shambles. You see, I went back. I went back because I thought that I could bring to justice the most heinous murderer in history. Instead, I unleashed a monster into time and eternity. The man you were chasing. His name is Jack the Ripper. The crystal gives the Ripper the ability to travel through time and space and act as a de facto transporter device, making him even more deadly. We get the expected nightman manimal team-up and find out Dr. Chase's ability has been passed to his daughter, and we end up getting two manimals and a nightman against Jack the Ripper. This episode further fleshed out the mystical origins of Chase's power, while at the same time raising even more questions. Evidently, the crystal is not needed for the manimal powers, as Jonathan said his father transferred the ability to him, and his daughter seemed to simply inherit them with no special transference. Even so, Jonathan said the crystal facilitated this ability, but he did not elaborate. What exactly is the crystal needed for, other than to be a time travel plot device to facilitate this episode? Where did Jack the Ripper get his crystal, and how many of them are out there? I suppose these would have been a lot of questions to answer in the 42-minute runtime. The transformation effects in this episode were not the same ones used in Manimal, 
These were rapid shapeshifts done with 90s CGI instead of the practical Stan Winston effects we got in Manimal. Behind the Scenes This is a show I had missed the first time around, and this was actually my first viewing of Manimal that I can recall. In fall of 1983, we were busy packing up and selling our house to move into a camper at the end of the year. The TV either got put in storage or sold at a garage sale, and I didn't see a lot of TV from fall of 83 through the summer of 1984 when we got back from our big road trip. Manimal was skewered by the media, most notoriously by David Letterman, as we heard earlier. It wasn't just Manimal. The whole Friday night lineup for NBC was getting terrible ratings. But it was on against CBS ratings powerhouse Dallas, a top-rated show. Like The Phoenix, Street Hawk, V, Misfits of Science, The Highwayman, Manimal was yet another sci-fi fantasy genre show thrown on the schedule to counter-program against Dallas in an attempt to lure younger viewers who weren't interested in the adult goings-on of the Ewing family and were too young to go out on Friday night. Glenn Larson blames some of Manimal's issues with the fact the premiere episode had low viewership due to that competition from the Dallas season premiere, which is true. The show did end up getting low ratings. The tone and pacing of the show was typical of action-adventure shows of the 80s that you just couldn't take too seriously. You know, the kind of show the 80s was known for. No matter what the plot dangers, you know the main characters will pull through complete with a freeze-frame ending. The kind of show Glenn Larson, Donald Belisario, and Stephen Cannell were known for. Even so, the fantasy plot devices offered in Manimal strained audiences' suspension of disbelief. I think the series was complicated by Dr. Chase's ability to transform into any animal instead of just one. It's one thing to ask viewers to accept an AI car that drove itself or a band of humans fleeing for their lives in another galaxy. Instead of giving Dr. Chase the ability to transform into a certain animal, it was decided to give him the ability to transform into any animal, and across classes, mammal, bird, reptile, fish, animals that had a wide variety of sizes, which violated the law of conservation of mass. Not that we're really paying any attention to the laws of physics here. Worse than that, though, were how the transformations were depicted. In the panther transformation, usually his clothes were shown ripping down the back. Yet, when he returned to being human, he was fully dressed again, with his clothing magically reappearing, even though he is usually in a completely different place. The clothing issue is simply never addressed. The editing and continuity of the transformations left something to be desired, for example, a typical hawk transformation, he would be standing on the ground, transform, then as a hawk, he would be perched and take off from a tree branch that was far too small for a person to be sitting on. Exactly when did he get from the ground to up in the tree? These and other issues made the show hard to take seriously. The panther and hawk transformations were done by Stan Winston, who got his start working on the 1972 TV movie, Gargoyles, which I covered in episode 15. The following year, he would hit the big time, working on Starman and the Terminator. The manimal transformation seemed to be accomplished with a combination of various facial appliances, 
prosthetics, and hand paw mock-ups in various stages, very obviously superimposed in front of whatever location he was supposed to be at. The Panther hand paw transformation involved robotic forearms in at least seven stages of progression. There were five hawk heads in various stages. The progress of transforming would be done in cutaways or in slow-fade video edits, apparently meant to evoke memories of 1981's American Werewolf in London. But the budget Stan Winston was given just didn't allow for Rick Baker-level transformations. Some of the prosthetics were fantastic for a TV production, but did not come across well on video. The way they were edited and superimposed made them come across as cheesy TV effects. And as I said, the Hawk transformation was simultaneously hilarious and horrifying, and has to be seen to be believed. Unfortunately, the budget only allowed for these two transformation sequences, as well as the later snake one done by the McCrackens. All others were implied off-screen. There was extensive reuse of footage in this show. Every episode seemed to have at least one scene in a warehouse with stacked boxes. So the footage, with the panther prowling around the warehouse from the premiere episode, could be reused. The animals used in the episodes had to have been limited by whatever animals were available at the time of filming. The animal coordinator on this show was Ron Oxley. He provided the animals on the show and had trained the black bear Bruno, the original Gentle Ben, and dozens of lions, tigers, cougars, leopards, bears, and wolves. His animals worked in numerous TV shows and movies, including Cat People, Lady Hawk, Continental Divide, Escape to Witch Mountain, and Adventures of the Wilderness Family. Unfortunately, Oxley died in his sleep at age 46 in 1985. Oxley is only credited for the pilot episode, alongside animal trainers Cheryl Shaver, Mark Harden, and Hubert Wells. No other animal handlers were credited for the remaining episodes. Whenever the script called for an animal transition, the production designer, director, set decorator, stunt supervisor, animal wrangler, and the actors had to carefully coordinate every move. Shooting on a soundstage allowed more animal control. Location shoots were more difficult, thus the extensive reuse of animal footage once it was obtained. When the premiere episode required the use of a cobra, the entire set's perimeter floor and walls had to be sealed to prevent the cobra from escaping. A low wall was placed at the open end of the set to seal the stage. To set up filming action scenes with the snake, the camera crew had to lift their equipment into the walled-off stage area. The snake wrangler then supervised the animal's movements. Another issue I have with Manimal was common to these types of shows that feature a fantastical main character. He is given rather mundane crimes, enemies, and stories to work with. This is the same issue that faced Spider-Man five years earlier. In fiction, typically your enemies should be just as interesting as your main character. But in these types of shows, we had smugglers, drug dealers, gangsters, and common thieves. An additional aspect of the series not explored very well was Jonathan's history and origins of his powers. We were given that mystical backstory tacked on to the openings of the seven episodes that followed the premiere. In this opening, we see a 12-year-old Jonathan witness his father's death 
and his Jedi-like ascension into the Force? Or did he become that hawk flying in front of the full moon? This was never really explained in the Manimal series. We had that tacked-on explanation in Nightman 15 years later, but the Manimal series was not really given much time to delve into this. However, a line or two would have been nice to attempt to give some type of source or methodology to his powers. Did his father teach this to him, or just magically imbue him with the power upon his death? It would have been great if they had delved into this more. There was actually a Manimal comic book published in 1986. However, it had nothing to do with the series. It was a reprint of stories by Ernie Cullen that originally appeared in 1974 in the fantasy magazine Hot Stuff. The stories contained nudity, Nazis, and hanging corpses. A Glenn Larson production, it was not. If you remember Heavy Metal magazine, you get the idea. When watching Manimal, you may notice a small, distinctive scar under Simon McCorkendale's right eye. He got this in a cricket accident when he was 13. He has highlighted it and even used it as a part of his performance on several occasions as a trait of his character. Simon was cast on Falcon Crest the year after Manimal and played the role of Greg Reardon for 59 episodes. He was given the lead role in the 1990 series Counter-Strike. He had a recurring role on Poltergeist The Legacy and in 2002 appeared as Harry Harper in 230 episodes of the BBC medical drama Casualty. In the late 2000s, he was diagnosed with colon cancer and he and his wife, Susan George, spent much of their assets battling the disease, opting for private treatment in the United States. Sadly, in 2010, he lost this four-year battle at age 58. Melody Anderson was in a number of TV movies and had recurring roles on Jake and the Fat Man and All My Children. In the mid-90s, she left acting and obtained a master's degree in social work. She became a licensed clinical social worker in the states of New York and California. Now 62, she is an international lecturer and media spokesperson on addictions and the family. Michael D. Roberts, the year after Manimal, appeared in The Ice Pirates and continued making numerous TV guest appearances. Airwolf, Cagnia Lacey, Hunter, MacGyver, Quantum Leap... He was recently seen as a regular on the series The First Family. Glenn Larson went on to produce The Highwayman, Nightman, Team Knight Rider, which was the late 90s Knight Rider revival, the 2008 Knight Rider series, as well as the 2004 reimagining of Battlestar Galactica and its related series. He died in 2014 at age 77. Donald Boyle went on to create the 1990 series Gabriel's Fire with James Earl Jones and wrote episodes of V the series and worked as a writer-producer for Baywatch and Baywatch Nights. Other than his TV work, there is no biographical information on him that I can find, including his age and whether or not he is still alive. After the year 2000, he basically fell off the map. And what about Brandon Tartikoff? In the 1983-84 mid-season, Riptide and Night Court were added to NBC's schedule, and in the fall, the Peacock modified its slogan to Let's All Be There, and hit shows Highway to Heaven, 
Miami Vice, and The Cosby Show were added, and NBC's rating slump was over. By the end of the 1980s, NBC consistently had a hold on half of the top 20 shows on TV, and the 1983 season of Misfires was forgotten. Tartikoff became well-known for making meta-appearances, poking fun at himself on NBC shows such as Night Court and Saved by the Bell. He was written into an episode of ALF, but was played by David Leisure. Brandon Tartikoff died in 1997 at age 48 from Hodgkin's lymphoma. After years of being a punchline on The Late Show and a footnote in the history of TV, Manimal was aired in France in the early 90s and was so well-received that there was brief talk of a revival. Perhaps bringing Manimal back on Nightman was Glenn Larson's toying with this idea. Manimal was re-aired on the Sci-Fi Channel as part of its series collection in the mid-90s. Around this same time, it started getting mentioned several times on Mystery Science Theater 3000, including this segment where Tom Servo's head was enlarged to hold all the knowledge of man. Lord, this is incredible. My head is so huge, I've accumulated all the knowledge of all humanity throughout the ages. Yet all I can think about is why. Why did they cancel Manimal? Why? In 2002, TV Guide ranked Manimal number 15 on its 50 worst TV shows of all time list. Then, after several overseas DVD releases, in 2015, it finally got a Region 1 release on DVD by Shout Factory. Is there a possible future for Manimal? In 2012, it was reported that Sony Pictures was developing a live-action and CGI film based on Manimal, much like Disney is doing in next year's upcoming Dumbo. Glenn Larson was once again attached as a producer. In 2014, it was reported that Will Ferrell and Adam McKay would produce the movie through their Gary Sanchez Productions company. Key and Peele's Ian Roberts and Jay Martell were hired to write the script. Since Glenn Larson's death in 2014, there have been no updates reported on the project, and it remains uncertain if the film will actually be made. Manimal got a reputation for being a terrible and preposterous show, but I think it got more than its fair share of ridicule. Was it any more preposterous than a computerized man that comes to life and works for the police? A talking bulletproof smart aleck supercar? Or a sleepless man that flies around at night, telepathically recognizing evil and zapping bad guys with his eye laser? Or was it really worse than Mr. Smith or We Got It Made, neither of which even made it to TV Guide's 50 Worst TV Shows list? When talking about misfits of science... Courtney Cox once said, It was one of those shows you either loved or hated, like Manimal. Was Manimal high art? No, but I can't say it wasn't entertaining. Given the current TV landscape filled with reality shows and endless rehashed police procedurals, give me some 80s Glenn Larson any day, with shows like Auto Man, Knight Rider, and Manimal. There's a place you gotta go for learning all you ought to know about the facts of life, the facts of life. When your books are what you're there about, but looks are what you care about, the time is right to learn the facts of life when the world never sees. 
Charlotte Ray, star of the 80s series The Facts of Life, has died at age 92. Ray got her start in theater and radio and transitioned to TV actress at the dawn of television in the early 1950s, performing in several TV theater presentations popular in the day. She had a role on Car 54, Where Are You?, and appeared in numerous forgotten TV-era shows, such as Love American Style, The Paul Lenz Show, Hot L Baltimore, Phyllis, and CPO Sharkey, before landing the role of Mrs. Garrett in Different Strokes in 1978. This makes Todd Bridges now the last surviving member of the original Different Strokes cast. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Doug Grindstaff, five-time Emmy-winning sound engineer, has died at age 87. You probably don't recognize the name, but you will recognize his sound effects. These highly recognizable sounds are from the original Star Trek, where he served as sound effects editor. He later worked on The Immortal, which he won an Emmy for, The Brady Bunch, Max Headroom, Midnight Caller, Falcon Crest, Knott's Landing, and Dallas. He also worked behind the scenes as a vice president of Lorimar Telepictures and headed sound departments at Paramount, Columbian Pacific, and was president of the Motion Picture Sound Editors, which honored him in 1998 with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Next time on Forgotten TV. TV Guide called it the seventh worst show of all time. But was it? Tune in next time to hear me discuss Aftermash. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with NBC, 20th Century Fox Television, Glenn Larson Productions, or any TV network or production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. Don Giller, the Museum of Classic Chicago Television, 80s Commercial Vault, Micro Jow, Marcel Pazin. Check out my recent appearance on the Forgotten Filmcast, where we discuss the 1975 film classic, Doc Savage. And subscribe to Stuck in the 80s to not miss my upcoming show on the top five TV misfires of the 1980s. A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV, 
If you would like to support Forgotten TV, please click through to Amazon on any link in the show notes or website. Those extra few dollars a month help offset the cost of DVDs and equipment needed to produce the show. If you'd like to affect the podcast lineup, visit my Amazon wish list and help me out by getting me a DVD set of whatever show you'd like to hear on Forgotten TV. For content in addition to what is presented in the podcast, like the Forgotten TV Facebook page or follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Those links are found at Forgotten.tv. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network, where you can find other great entertainment podcasts. I'm your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.